This is an ABC podcast. For many of us in the Pacific, our physical environment goes hand in hand with both our livelihood and our very being. But our way of life has changed so much in a short time. We faced colonization and now we're dealing with globalization. And that means what we may have done for thousands of years needs to change. And that is not easy. So what is it like being a conservationist in Papua New Guinea, the land of a thousand tribes? Particularly when you're working along a 400-kilometer river, and along that stretch, people speak 10 different languages. I can tell you that it takes dedication and passion. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk to a bush biologist about the work she does along the Kikori River in Papua New Guinea. Yolani Amepo from Papua New Guinea has dedicated the last decade to conservation along the Kikuri River in the country's south. Her main focus is on saving the peak nose turtle, a species she first learned about years earlier when she was at university. At the time, she was studying marine biology, and she attended a lecture by a Brazilian conservationist whose words stayed with her and ultimately led her to the Kikori. So I saw the notice on the notice board that she was giving a a short talk. And I thought this might help me out with my essay. Leatherback turtles, pignose turtles, they're all turtles. The first thing she said, she asked, why am I here? And because I'm a short person, I, I sat right in front. And so when she said, why am I here? She looked at us like we were supposed to answer that question. And I sat in front and I felt very... Okay, um, she's asking the question and I'm right here in front and I felt <laughs> like she was looking at me when she asked the question. <laughs> she, she asked, why am I here? And she continued, she said, I'm from Brazil and Brazil is halfway around the world and I'm here in Papua New Guinea to study a turtle that belongs to you. Why should a Brazilian travel halfway around the world to do something that's your responsibility? And it was very challenging to hear her start off the conversation like that. I think it was a time when I was young and I didn't like challenges from people I didn't know. And I felt very challenged at that time. So fast forward, maybe two years after that. So I was offered a scholarship and the people who offered me the scholarship, they're from the uh, Papua New Guinea Institute of Biological Research. They brought me up to a a highlands town called Goroka. And uh, there were all these terrestrial biologists. So these are all the biologists that work on land. And Goroka is nowhere near the sea. And they saw me and they took me in and then they didn't know what to do with me, I think. So they said, you go out and explore and see if there's a study that you can go and do. And then if it's feasible, we'll let you do it. And I, I remember the Brazilian and what she said. And I was like, okay, so this Brazilian challenged me. Let's go and see if we can do something about this turtle. And at that time, the turtle was in decline here in the Kikori. I had no idea where the Kikori was, but I went up and I read about it and I looked at what we should do. And the more I read about the turtle, the more I fell in love with it. And I thought if there was something I wanted to do with my life, it had to be something that, you know, somewhere that was not crowded. I wanted to be somewhere where I could just be far away from people. Back then, I was very ignorant, so I thought um, coming into Kikori would be far away from people. 
But those were the conversations that started um, me thinking, let's do something. Not necessarily, I wasn't thinking the big responsibility of I'm going to come out and save the country. I was thinking, why don't we do something small that's impactful, that makes me feel good about my life so I die a little bit satisfied. Wow, that one um, chat from a Brazilian just changed your life completely. Yes, and when when she asked it, it didn't. I didn't think it was a life changing moment until two years later when I sat there and I and I thought back and I said, you know, she made a good point. She's coming from halfway around the world to take care of something that's ours. What are we doing about it? Mm. It didn't change my life the moment it happened. It actually hit me two years later, and even two years later, when I when I found myself in the Kikori for the first time. I never thought I'd spend the next 10 years of my life here. I also do not know much about the Kikori until I started following Piku on Facebook. And the diversity of that river delta and the conservation work, what is there is just amazing. Um, the Kikori River is second for the highest endemism for freshwater species in Papua New Guinea, second to the Fly River. So you've got over 100 different species of freshwater fish here. That's very uncommon for Papua New Guinea. They interact with this fish. This fish is normal. They put down a net and then you can come back and find like 10 different species of fish after maybe two hours of net in the water. And this is normal for them. It's normal for them to, to see the diversity of sharks and rays they find in the river. Whereas if you step into maybe Port Moresby, which is a couple of hours away from here, you won't hear people, even Papua New Guinea, people talk about river dolphins, whereas Kikori is used to seeing river dolphins. And these are things that they live with daily, and it's things that they're very used to. And when I first came in talking about the pignose turtle, people were like, she's talking about something that's really common. They they see um, pignose turtles nest every nesting season. They don't think, you know, of what Kikori places on what the responsibility of Kikori and Kikori people to the world. They think the responsibility of them and their land as they see it now. Um, Not everybody in Kikori is going to travel to Singapore or to Australia or to the United States. They don't have a bird's eye view of the the significance they place. When you look at um, just our shark and ray diversity, along this river, we take care of or we live with four different sawfish species. Globally, sawfish are critically endangered. And one of the last places in the world you'll find them is in Papua New Guinea. And within Papua New Guinea, sawfish are found everywhere. Some of the, the, the strongholds for population are in places like the Kikori. And the Kikori people see sawfish every day. When you talk to them about, you know, the sawfish that you see almost every week on your fishing net, it's not something people around the world see all the time. The dolphin that is, is facing a near extinction is not something that um, people see all the time. And my work with them is making them appreciate or talking about the things so that they appreciate that what we have is probably one of the last things in the world. It's, it's something to be proud of, but it also comes with an added responsibility. In order to make those connections and work with locals to help them appreciate the need for conservation in the Kikori, first, Yulani had to learn to appreciate and respect the diversity of the region. 
we know Papua New Guinea has 865 different languages. We call ourselves the land of a thousand tribes. Our different cultures, Kikori is like a snapshot of that. 10 different languages are spoken along a tiny river that's 400 kilometers long. 10 different languages. I have to um, traverse this one river. I can traverse it in a day and speak different languages as you go from one tribal land into another tribal land. Wow. So I have to learn like, um, like uh, maybe if, if I looked at the Pignos Turtle, um, if I started from up the river, it's called Piku. And when I come down the river, it's Watemu, Watemui. Then it becomes Uo, Kaso Uo, Uro, Waema, Mayama, the Oro. The words change. Neu, this is all the same um, word for the same animal, but with the different tribes. The chief, different tribes have different cultures. How I might be um, doing one thing very, that's to me very okay in one tribe, but as soon as I step into another, I have to change the way I behave because it's not okay in that culture. So you 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 work within the cultural context of different people with, with respect to the cultures that they have. When we talk about um, conservation, we, we think it's a, it's a foreign concept. The word is foreign. Conservation is foreign. But for people who have lived with land, um, and lived in environment for thousands of years, not a hundred, thousands of years, it shaped the way we do things. Um, if you look at the Pignos turtle, for some of the cultures, from some of the tribes on the coast, they refer to it as a mother. So when we were first talking about how it's in decline, they said the Pignos turtle is our mother. It was there before, and it will always be here. And trying to um, have that conversation of, Yes, it was there before, but it might actually not be here into the future, was trying to shift the mindset of something that's always here. So they have, um, it, it's a lot of the animals and the things in the environment are very intertwined into culture and the way of life for people here. And conserving or um, managing your environment is also keeping um, the people and their way of life that's unique to them in intact. Um, it keeps your value, your self-value, your culture is your identity. And when you lose a lot of the things in your environment, it loses the essence of what you are. And when you look at Papua New Guineans and when you look at like independence, for example, you'll see that we all come out with our different cultural attires. And when you look at your cultural attire, it's all the birds of paradise plumes. And it's all your grass cats. It's all the dances that came out from thousands of years of us watching our environment and what was here. Even if you look at um, the way our courtship um, dances, for example, they look at the way the birds dance or how the animals interact with each other. And we adopt the things that we find, oh, this is, this is beautiful. For example, like um, the sawfish. Uh, when, when we were talking about the sawfish uh, here a couple of years ago, I tried to talk to people about why is it important to you? Because I didn't know. And a lot of the young people had forgotten the cultural significance of the sawfish. And we talked to a lot of the old people and they said, back in the day, the sawfish was very hard to get. And so if a young man went out and got um, the sawfish, they'd cut off the rostrum. So that's like the nose. It looks like a saw. And they'd, the uncle would place it on his back and dance with it. And we, the sawfish is a huge animal. 
And when you have the rostrum on, on your back, it's teeth bite into your skin and blood flows. But that was the way of celebrating um, the young boy becoming a man. Wow. And losing that sawfish is losing that story. It's losing the, the culture that came with that story. So we are very intertwined with, with these things and, and protecting your environment and the different animals and plants you find with it, within it is like protecting yourself. And a lot of that I did not take seriously until I spent a lot of time living with the people here. And so when we went out, like when I go out into Port Moresby and other places and I talk to a lot of the older people who spend a lot of time in community or came from villages, they, they talk about these things and it gives me a new appreciation. And we, we, we forget these things. Like I went to university and I spent a lot of time in school and in town. And I never really appreciated it until I came back to the village and became that bush biologist who stayed with um, communities. You, you, you get a different perspective of things and it makes you appreciate more what you're doing. It's not just saving animals. It's almost like um, preserving these, the essence of humanity. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. Today I'm talking to Yulani Amwepo from Papua New Guinea, who has dedicated the last decade to conservation along the Kikori River. She didn't grow up in the area, but she has come to understand the locals and works hard to find her place among them. One thing that I think if you looked at um, people trying to do biology or conservation biology or actually just coming to stay in community, health, anything, you have to realize <laughs> that you're going to have to um, treat it like home. And that's something that I thought to myself um, when I first left uni and I went to New Island, um, New Island province. It's if you don't love the work you're doing, if you don't love the people, you're going to have a really hard time. It comes with understanding that you don't know and understanding that you're going to get criticized a lot. One thing that I realized with Papua New Guineans is because we're so culturally diverse, we're so used to stepping into a group of people who speak a totally different language and we'll have no idea what they're saying. That, that's just normal to a Papua New Guinean. It's actually not normal when you step out, but it's, it's very good for us when we travel back into villages. It's, we spend the first few days um, seeing and trying to understand the little things they do, how they cook how we break firewood, what a woman can do, what a woman can't do, gender roles, and how you behave. When you look at Papua New Guinea as a country, we've been living on this land um, maybe 60,000 years. And uh, for the Kikori, they've, they've got like traces of people here dating back 10,000 of years. And so people have been living here and interacting here for thousands of years. And it's not something that's going to change within the, like the next or maybe within 47 years of independence or it's not going to change within a couple of years so if you're thinking i'm going to come in and change the way things are done that's a pipe dream that's that's a big wish the way you survive is to come in and see what's done here and then figure out your place in it you know what what do we do in this community that we add value to it and I made a lot of mistakes and I'm still doing a lot of mistakes. Ten years on, I look back and I, I'm, I'm surprised with how patient the different tribes were with me. Um, there were many cases where people just straight out told me, um, you know, you're really stupid. 
<laughs> like, yeah, I, I'm going, you have to accept that in a lot of cultures, you're really stupid. <laughs> and because you do things like people, people are like, why would you? And mm-hmm. 10 years later, I'm thinking, why did I? Um, but you're constantly learning and you have to be open to criticism. And so it's I'm, been 10 years and I'm still finding my place. And I think after 10 years, whenever I come back into Kikori for field work or I'm in town, everybody says, oh, you know, turtle ladies here. And they call me turtle <laughs> lady and they all do their different languages. Oh, so they'd be like, um, the main one is Piku, which is what Piku Biodiversity Network is named for. So they're like, oh, Piku Mama's here. And That's they amazing. look at the rosewood tree and they know it's nesting season because the rosewood tree starts to put its leaves, starts to flower. And everybody looks at the tree starting to flower now and they see me and they're like, yes, she's come right in time for the, the nesting season. <laughs> that um, is so Be, be prepared hear. for a lot of mistakes. Going back to where you come from in Medang, coastal girl yourself mm. growing up, before university, how interested were you in conservation and wildlife? I grew up in town and I'm, believe it or not, an extreme introvert. So uh, the people in Medang know me as that person who never leaves the house. And I was, I used to climb trees and this is um, my friends in Medang would probably listen to this and go, yes, up until I was in grade 12. So I was like, I was still um, in my late teens and still climbing trees. And people used to think like now they look at me and they say, oh, she used to love trees and that's why she climbed. Actually, I used to climb trees because I wanted to get away from people. And that was the only way they couldn't reach me. Like you <laughs> climb a tree and you just hide there and you read your book. So wow. I was I was a bookworm and I spent a lot of my time reading. And when you go into high school, they'll ask you what you want to do with your life. And that's when you really start thinking seriously about it. And I, I was watching this documentary, you know, David Attenborough just touched everybody's lives. But we, my family was very big on um, every Sunday, we'd have like Sunday dinner and we'd all spend a day at home watching wildlife videos. And we, we, I was at that point in my life where people were asking, what are you going to be? And at that time I was like, I like books, I'll be an author. And my mom was like, no. So that dream died. And I thought um, I'll be an electrician because that looks like a really cool job. And my mom said no again. So that dream died. And so I I was watching TV with my family and David Attenborough was um, talking and he, I think he had an interview with a marine biologist. And I looked at it and I, I thought, I love swimming. I love snorkeling. Um, when you're in a place like Medang, you put on your your mask and your snorkel and you go out and underwater is a different world. It's a totally different world. And I like that. And I, that's the first time I ever heard, I was in grade nine, and that was the first time I ever heard there was such a thing as a marine biologist. And I thought, I want to do this. Uh, if there's a job that can keep me outdoors, the way I can sleep under the stars and um, then keep me out of an office, I want to do that. And it, there's this thing called a marine biologist and I want to do that. And so... I, that was when I first started. And my mom didn't say no, because I think she had no idea what I was talking about. And she thought marine biology, she might um, get rid of that idea once she, she gets to later secondary school. And so by grade 12, I, I finished, um, we finished and I was a straight A student. So um, I could pick and choose wherever I wanted to go. And that's when I chose University of Papua New Guinea. And my big dream at the back of my head was I want to spend my days outside. And I want to spend my days in nature. 
And that was uh, probably this um, in nature with animals far away from people. And that was my selfish um, introvert desires. And uh, I, you, things just played out to a point where I, the, the rest of my life, like currently, I'm outdoors a lot. Um, I'm with nature a lot, but I'm with a lot of people and I amazingly enjoy it. Uh, I love David Attenborough too, and you've got David Attenborough's passion as well. I can just tell just by listening to you. <laughs> so what sort of books did you read? I like the old classics. So I had like um, Anne of Green Gables, L.M. Montgomery, this this Canadian um, author. I love all her books. And so I spent a lot of time in the classics and a lot of less time interacting with people. I, I also blame um, the fact that I read a lot on how my mind was full of possibilities. And so I never had the conversation that the thought that um, you going into a place where nobody is, is not possible. Or you going to work with a declining turtle is not possible. And now when people ask me, what what are some of the things that make it uh, difficult? Uh, One of the biggest difficulties I face is finding young people who can come and, and enjoy fieldwork. It's beautiful in books. It's great when we talk about it, but it means a lot of hours in the sun and you're exhausted and dehydrated and looking for water because you accidentally finished all your water. It's very hard when you're actually doing it. Um, And finding people to come with that kind of passion and think that it's possible. Like uh, when we think, oh, we're going to, we have a dolphin going into extinction. It's easier to think it's too hard. And it's it's impossible because you, you start to list all the things. It's impossible because um, the Gulf province where I am is logistically difficult to work in. Lowest for standards in education, lowest for standards in health. You're a woman. All the tense um, cultures you work with are all patrilineal. This means men make all the decisions. It's going to be very hard. I never thought of that it's impossible. I always thought it's an obstacle. I have to figure out a way to overcome the obstacle. And I think um, being in those books a lot kind of shaped a lot of that. And I think if I spent a lot of time hanging around um, with people, I'd, I'd have gotten some sense of what is possible and not possible. And maybe some of the things I do now would have not happened if I'd spent a lot of time talking about the impossible in the world. How important is it for young people interested in conservation to listen and learn from their own role models? I find that question really, really interesting. Um, It's really interesting because you have to choose your role model. And I've had a couple of people say stuff like, you know, you're you're our role model. And I'm like, I really don't want to be anybody's role model because I know myself really well. And there's some things about myself I really don't want people (laughs) replicating <laughs> but um you you, you choose your role models um but the good bits we, we see the good bits that we forget that like our, our role models are also human beings and and there's a lot of bad bits there as well mm. so mm. young people i would be look at every situation you're in as a learning opportunity and sometimes the people you never consider to be important might come out with your lifetime wisdom. Sometimes someone will come and put one sentence into your head and walk away with their life, you know. 
your role model isn't someone who'll take care of you forever. They do stuff, and uh, there's something about them that you 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 see and you like. And this, uh, the way I look at it, after ten years of Kikori, I've had some really really important life-changing bits of wisdom from the random passerby, you know, from a random situation. And usually it's a hard situation. So sometimes in your most difficult, difficult um, situations is where you find your most valuable lesson. And so I wouldn't say young people look at um, your role model. I'd say young people look at every situation you're in and figure out why am I here and what, does this, what, what is this trying to teach me? And when you think of every moment as a teaching moment, you start to appreciate the little lessons that you learn and all the little lessons turn into a big, important picture. And it also helps you understand the role you play. So when you're young or as a young person, we're trying to find our place in the world. Everyone's trying to find a place in the world and you have to understand your uniqueness. If you're constantly looking at somebody else and thinking, I'm going to replicate that person as they are, you'll never be you. And we kind of need you to be you so that you can play the piece of the puzzle that you are part of. I would be look at every single moment as a teaching moment. And if you're constantly finding yourself in this moment, um, what I do is think, okay, what are you trying to teach me? And what can I learn? And as soon as I learn this lesson, I get to move on to the next lesson. Yolani, great words of advice and wisdom, wisdom there. Thank you for sharing. You've been doing this for 10 years. What are you most proud of? If I, off the top of my head, um, when I first came here, I spent a lot of time with the young people in the classrooms. I had a lot of kids. One of the best, uh, funnest things I did was I, I spent a lot of time in classrooms doing activities that were fun for kids. And I was 25 when I first came here. So it was, uh, it's very fun at that time. Now I feel like my fun isn't that fun for young people. So I go and get young people to figure out what's fun for young people now. <laughs> um, it's been 10 years and a lot of those young kids in the classroom are now older. And when you're in a place like Ikori, uh, in a lot of rural places, young people are already leaders. So by the time they're 11, 12, 13, when they come to primary school, when they're in grade 8, grade 9, grade 10, when they return back to the village, they might be the most educated person in that village, educated in the sense of numeracy and literacy and having gone to school. And people look at them with a lot of respect. And so you are looking, when I go into a village, I see that. And even a 13-year-old is a leader and you, you, you look at them and you have to treat them with that respect that the village gives to them. You can have, I've been to villages where the 18-year-old is not responsible for his land and his land is not 10, you know. It's not like our normal house in the city where you can stand and look. It could be from one mountain to the next mountain, and it might take you four days to traverse that whole place, and he's responsible for that. And so my proudest moment is watching a lot of these young people make decisions that have been towards biodiversity conservation, not necessarily towards biodiversity conservation, but in consideration of making that informed decision and fighting for it. When I'm here and I see these young people do that, I think that's, that's, 
that's one of the proudest things ever. You can tell people or inform people. It's up to them to take your advice and to take what you taught them and put it into their lives. So if I come across like a pignose turtle nest and I know people have been here and they've taken half the eggs and they've left half the eggs. <laughs> We've come across that sometimes. You know that someone's taking those little steps towards conservation. And they, those are when I see those little conservation actions, it, that's one of the things that really, really puts that spark in your day. And it just keeps you like, oh, I could do this for another year or so. Well, my proudest moment would probably be seeing um, the things I do translate into normal everyday life for a lot of people around me. What an inspiration Yolani Amepo is, even if she says she doesn't want to be seen as a role model. Yolani is a bush biologist working to save the pig-nosed turtle and wider biodiversity of the Kikori River. Thank you so much for joining me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia a weekly show by Pacific Islands Women for Pacific Islands Women, where we get together to talk about the issues that are important to us. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. In the Pacific, just search for Sisters Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Australia, you can listen to Sisters Let's Talk on the ABC Listen app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, how do you manage your money? We'll talk about teaching women in the Pacific to better understand their finances so that they can save, plan, and hopefully be ready for whatever life throws their way. We teach them to understand money, to touch money, to study money, to, to know the power of money and to know that they are the boss of their money. The money should not boss them around. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunsna. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungimu next time. <laughs>